0: A Delta Airline 727 is taking off out of Dallas-Fort Worth when it hits the runway and crashes. What caused this flight to be destroyed before it could start?
1: Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
0: I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hello. Welcome to episode 121 about a part 121 operator. Yeah! Hey, look at that.
1: Hey! hey. <laughs> we oh. only get to say this once ever, so... Here true. you go! There it is.
2: Thanks to our new patron, Matt. Thanks! Yeah! But he's new. He
0: recommended a few episodes. Um, One of them, I think we were able to actually say, yes, we can do that. Yeah. Oh, and another one is coming out in a couple weeks anyway.
1: He also gave us some really great information on helicopters. Yeah,
2: I was going to say thanks for your post about the Kobe crash.
1: I'll be right up front. I am no helicopter guy. I mean, I think they are super cool, but I am no helicopter guy. Nope. That is for sure. So, for sure, there was some misinformation here and there, and... It's because Such. we
0: don't know helicopters. Hi, yes. hello.
1: But he gave us some actually really great insight, and I really appreciate it. He yeah, was so if any of you guys
0: want to see that, he commented on Patreon on the episode for the Kobe crash, and he provided a lot of insight, like why helicopters don't just hold and hover.
1: This is because he is.
0: A helicopter pilot.
1: And as he called himself, a helicopter chauvinist.
0: Oh, yeah, he said that. Yes. <laughs> anyway...
2: Anywho. To be fair, we did use the report as our main source for that. So, yes, you know. Anyway, if you want to send in a story, please feel free send to in do a that. Story.
1: I know there have been people that are saying they're going to send in stories. Please do it soon. This please. is your time. <laughs> Anyways, because uh, this
2: comes out probably when you should be sending in stories, so send them, please. And
1: then either by uh, next week or the week after, we will sound a little different.
2: Oh yes. Because we got new... Equipment! equipment. We ordered... We'll talk
1: about more about how we got it on the post-episode. But Yes, we ordered all new stuff, and that is thanks to you guys, and we appreciate it. We really do. But we are going to change out everything. Yeah. I mean, the microphones and the soundboard and everything, it's all going to be new. So we will sound a little different and a little better next week, and we can stop with the peaking crap.
0: If not next
1: week, then the week after. Yeah. Yes, hopefully it'll be by next week, but we'll see. I think that's it
2: for housekeeping stuff oh
0: and we sent out everyone their ducks yes whose orders we had up to this point and yes. merch and merch so yes you're
1: hearing this two weeks later so hopefully you all have them by now but please
0: let us know
1: Feel free to, like, post a picture of them, yeah. comment Tag or us. something. Tag us in your pictures of your ducks.
2: I know, Bob, you did that. Thank you. It's First of all, it was funny. And second of all, it's just nice to know that you got them so we know that you, they got there. We Especially got...
0: overseas. Uh, apologies to all of our international people who requested those. We did have to tape the ducks a little... um, Flat. Squished. Listen, <laughs> it cut the price of the postage in half, so deal with it.
1: Sorry. But also, thank you for ordering so many of them i mean there were quite a few orders in one day because we mentioned it but we also nearly ran out of ducks no we didn't
2: No, we have maybe have 30
1: probably not 30
2: maybe like 20 ish ducks left
1: right that's only maybe 10 more people can not even how many people can order not very many math yeah seven people
2: ish ish i mean we didn't actually count them i'm just kind of throwing a number out there
1: but if this continues to be a hit i will purchase more ducks
2: yeah we'll just purchase more i know it it. was a point of like getting rid of them was the whole point to do this but but...
1: they are cheap and it is fun
0: yeah so we'll send you ducks but also don't
1: make us go bankrupt
0: (laughs) Yeah, if you live internationally and offer postage i'm not gonna say no because it's expensive it's really expensive we We spent
2: spent fifty dollars for postage
1: plus to send a few ducks
2: yeah
0: it's fine anyway
1: it's okay order your ducks We actually really appreciate it anyways, because it is a great way we connect with you guys, and it's fun. Yeah. I enjoy it. It carries on a tradition in my family.
2: All right. With that being said, all that fun housekeeping stuff,
1: what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Delta Flight 1141.
0: Thank you to our patron, Rich, for recommending this.
2: Apparently, this is also a Miranda wage warning episode, so... I will mention specifically
0: where that is. Yes! You've been warned. Also, I'm doing something slightly different today? Sort of.
1: There are a couple of similarities you will find to this flight that you will have heard in another one, if you have been paying attention.
0: Which is problematic for some people.
1: We will bring it up later on.
0: God, the FAA.
1: Yes! This happened on August 31st of 1988. This was a Boeing 727-200 with the tail number November 437 Delta Alpha. This was a flight from Jackson, Mississippi, to Dallas-Fort Worth, to Salt Lake City. We will be talking about the Dallas-Fort Worth to Salt Lake City leg. The captain for the flight was Larry Lon Davis. He was 48 years old, and there are no hours for any of the crew. Just awesome. So you know. Couldn't find him in the report. Couldn't find them on Wikipedia. Nothing. They just didn't have them. And this was weird, because this was an NTSB report. They always have them. They always have, have them.
0: Eighty-eight, right?
1: Yeah. So, so it's not like that. It like, wasn't new. No, but they didn't have hours for anybody.
2: Maybe it's because they had their logbooks on board?
1: I don't know. No, that wouldn't have been an issue. Nope, that would not
0: have been that, an issue.
1: That That's not really the thing here. They gave, like, background on the crew. They just didn't put hours. That's weird. The first officer was Kerry Wilson Kirkland. He was 37 years old. Don't know how many hours. And the flight engineer was Stephen Mark Judd. He was 30 years old. What I can tell you is that the captain had been with the airline for over 20 years. The first officer had been with the airline for a handful of years, less than 10, I think. And then the flight engineer had been with the Airline 41. The flight had departed Jackson, Mississippi at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time that morning. The first officer was a pilot flying for that leg to Dallas-Fort Worth. The flight arrived at Dallas-Fort Worth and taxi to Gate 15 at 7.38 a.m. Central Time. Once the airplane was parked, the captain and the first officer went to the Delta Ops office at Dallas-Fort Worth while the flight engineer remained on board. The airplane was fueled while on the ground at Dallas-Fort Worth. The flight engineer then received the fuel slip from the fueling agent as well as received the final weather briefing, the ATIS information, the automated terminal information system in case anybody needs a refresher, and the automatic weight and balance system data. So checked everything with the airplane and for their flight. With all the crew back on board and all the passengers and bags loaded, the flight pushed back from the gate at 8.30 a.m. as scheduled. The flight was to have 101 passengers, three flight crew, and four cabin crew. At 8.37 a.m. and 20 seconds, so seven minutes later after pushback, the east ground controller instructed the flight to, quote, join the inner for standard taxi to runway 18 left, end quote. And the crew acknowledged and began taxiing to the runway. Now, this is a little bit of a confusing statement, unless you look at a map or a diagram of Dallas. What this is, is there are two parallel taxiways that run east to west along the north side of the airport, one is considered the inner, and one is considered the outer.
2: Yeah, I covered a more episode that had something similar to that. A lot of aer- inner and outer.
1: A lot of airports use this method because, I mean, it's like a road. Basically, yeah. it allows them to put planes going in one direction on one side, and the planes yeah, the ad- going in the other direction on the, the other, other side. Set, yeah. But actually, in this case, they were using both taxiways to go in the same direction because it was very, very busy. We're talking about the third busiest airport in the country. So. The airport was super busy this time of morning, so they were using both taxiways to bring airplanes to the 18s.
0: The 18s are on the west side of the airport.
1: Yes, correct. They began taxiing to the runway. All three engines had been started initially, but the captain made the executive decision to shut down the number 3 engine to save some fuel, as it was apparent that they would be on the ground waiting for some time. This is pretty normal. They still, a lot of airlines still do this to this day is like if you're gonna be there for a while, you get a long ramp. hole, just shut one engine down,
0: and I mean, it just makes sense. Yeah, honestly, yes. I thought it was weird that they didn't shut down the number two engine.
1: Kind of, yes.
0: So, but to it, put in perspective, the number one engine is on the left side of the tail. The number two engine is in on the, tail, the tail, and the number three engine is on the right side of the tail.
1: Right. This is a seven twenty seven. We've talked about them before. So this, with this airplane, though. What really matters is what is tied to which engine, because oh, that makes sense. How the cabin gets air, what electrical systems run on which engine, kind of determines which engine they're going to shut down.
0: Never mind. So
1: he probably chose the number three for that reason. Yeah. I don't know what's tied to which one. I can't clarify that, but that's my guess.
2: There's probably some important stuff hooked up to the number one or number two engines. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe. So
1: and the number three might just have backups for everything on oh, the other two. Yeah. For all I know. I don't know. I don't know how that works. The airplane sat in the long line of aircraft on the two parallel taxiways leading to the 1-8 runways. 8.57 a.m. and 8 seconds, so now it's been another 20 minutes, when they appeared to be number four for takeoff. The first officer made an announcement to the flight attendants to prepare the cabin for departure. Immediately following that, the captain called for the number three engine to be started again. The first officer and the flight engineer ran through the checklist to start that engine. 8 fifty eight AM and thirty eight seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to taxi into position and hold on the runway, and the first officer acknowledged.
0: This means they got to skip the three people in front of them. Yeah.
1: Because the flight was on a separate taxiway from the other three aircraft that were supposed to be ahead of them for takeoff, they were able to essentially pass those three aircraft and take the runway. They were given instructions by air traffic control, so hey, they have the right of way. I do it. Was the
2: number three engine on at this point?
1: They were starting at just before that happened, okay, so they were by this point it was probably running again. Okay. that to. is
0: not a problem,
1: no, I was just curious, okay, yep, yep eight fifty nine and seventeen seconds. The air traffic controller cleared the flight for takeoff, and the first officer acknowledged the instruction. The captain advanced the throttles, and they began their takeoff roll on runway one eight left. The airplane accelerated normally, and everything appeared to be routine. The first officer made the callouts normally. As the captain rotated the airplane and it lifted off the runway, the tail struck the runway, which witnesses say they saw sparks from behind the airplane at that time. Then it suddenly banked right and struck the right wing. At that moment, either the captain or the first officer commented, engine failure, quote unquote. About that same time, two loud thumps or bangs were heard in the airplane, or explosions I saw it written as even. The airplane tilted back, back and forth to the left and right violently before striking the ILS or instrument landing system antenna array 1,000 feet beyond the end of the runway, shearing apart one part of one of the wings. The airplane then rolled hard and struck the ground where it slid and broke apart just behind the cockpit and losing one wing. The airplane came to rest 3,200 feet beyond the end of the runway. A post-crash fire ensued that burned part of the airplane Rescue and fire crews arrived in less than five minutes to the crash site and began trying to extinguish the fire while the people were evacuating. In all, 68 passengers received minor or no injuries, along with one of the flight crew. 22 passengers, 2 cabin crew, and 2 flight crew were seriously injured. 12 passengers and 2 cabin crew perished in the accident, in the fire.
0: They survived the crash itself, but... But succumbed to injuries Mm -hmm. afterwards. No, actually they died in the fire from either the fire or smoke. Yes. I think only one person died later.
1: Yes, and I actually have that note here. This is directly from the report. Quote, One person successfully exited the aircraft, but was severely burned when he attempted to re-enter the cabin. He died 11 days later. It is believed that he attempted to re-enter the cabin in an effort to provide assistance to his wife and other passengers in escaping from the aircraft.
0: Aww. Did they live?
1: I have no word. It does not say.
2: That's so sad.
0: I also don't know. There's weird rules around this, but I don't know if he is considered one of the fatalities because you have to die within a certain number of days of the crash to be yeah, considered we've talked a fatality. About
2: that I
1: wasn't sure either, but the asterisk was on the 12 who died. Okay. So I have a feeling Maybe it did he count. Maybe is one him. of
0: them. Yeah. Is that what you got?
1: That is it.
0: Miranda's confused already. I, As you should well, be. I just
2: thought it was funny that we were talking about tail strikes earlier and they tail struck.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that this I'm glad you're confused, because that means I did my job fantastically. Yeah. Actually.
2: There's, like, a lot that went on there. There's a lot Uh to unpack in a very small amount of time. I'm very confused as to why they tailstruck to begin with. And Nick didn't
0: tell the whole story, either. On purpose.
2: On purpose. That doesn't help. So,
0: this investigation was performed by the... NTSB. Who arrived on site within hours to a still very much smoking wreckage. They were able to recover both black boxes and have them shipped to their headquarters in Washington, D.C.
1: What do you know? For analysis. The D.C.
0: area. After doing a brief once-over of the wreckage, investigators spotted some clues. Namely, that the trailing edge of the wings had skidding damage, and so did the tail skid shoe, which is a metal shoe on the tail that will prevent damage to the fuselage and tail in the event of a tail tail strike. strike. The fact that it had damage led them to suspect a tail strike occurred. And so the investigators analyzed the runway, taking measurements of all marks on it as quickly as possible so as to help in getting the runway back in service as soon as possible. The marks on the runway confirmed that the tail did strike, and so did the right wing tip. There are a whole host of things that could lead to problems on takeoff like this, and I have a few options lined up for Miranda to pick from, a la Choose Your Own Adventure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we get to choose your own adventure this time. Great.
0: It has been sent to your telephonic device. Okay.
1: All right.
2: I get to pick now. This is us <laughs> take a journey. I,
0: I left the correct answer off of there, just so I you figured. know. I <laughs> figured.
2: Some, some of these, I'm like,
0: yeah, no, probably not.
1: Pick your journey anyway.
2: Let's start with weight and balance.
0: Weight and balance. So, investigators got a hold of the manifest, which reflected that the weight was 18,000 pounds below the maximum for the runway in use, and the center of gravity, or CG, was within the acceptable range. So, it wouldn't tail strike because it was overweight. Correct. Okay. The other thought with weight and balance is fuel. Here's where investigators got a little bit confused at first. The number one fuel gauge in the cockpit was inoperative, which sucks, and apparently it is known to happen on the 727. Apparently. That's weird. So there was a possibility of fuel not being in balance from left to right. If there was more fuel in the right tank, that would account for the tilt to the side and that would cause the right wing to strike first. Okay. Pretty yeah. logical conclusions here. Yeah. After finding out that the tanks were not drip-sticked after being refueled... <clears throat> failure. Investigators had to crunch way more numbers than they would have had to normally, but they ultimately found that the fuel tanks were balanced.
1: So I left out a whole portion in the story because there was like three paragraphs on this, actually. Oh, sweet Jesus. And it was most of the story, but it was unnecessary in the history of flight from the report. But essentially, the fueler noted that the, one of the fuel tanks had more fuel than the other when he dripsticked sticked before he fueled. So he did the calculations, figured out what they needed to have to have it even in all tanks. And he actually did it himself. And then he showed the flight engineer the numbers on the slip when he delivered it. They ran through it, made sure it was correct. He did note at that time that the number two fuel gauge was 500 gallons higher than it should have been. So that one also wasn't working great. That was just a note, but they had a number for what was in the tank. Even though he didn't dripstick afterward. But again, they found that this was not an issue.
2: Nope. That's still not
1: great, though. Yeah, no, not no, great. No, it wasn't great.
0: All right. Next one? Sure. Let's do bird strike. There was no evidence of a bird strike, despite the crew discussing some egrets in the distance while waiting for their taxi clearance. Yeah, I figured. Let's, <laughs> do, let's do another
2: one where I'm sure it, the case is... Okay, wake turbulence.
0: So this one's kind of interesting. Wake turbulence comes from wingtip vortices from the preceding flight, and we know it was a super busy day, so this did seriously come into question. Did they take off too soon? Were the flights sequenced too close together by air traffic control? Investigators found that the preceding flight, Delta Flight 1486, also a 727, was 7,000 feet ahead of the accident plane in the flight sequence, which is above the minimum of 6,000 feet of lateral separation, so there wouldn't have been any wake turbulence to affect this flight. Yeah, I didn't think so, but you know. Uh, Let's do weather. Unlike with Delta Flight 191, also a three-engine plane at Dallas-Fort Worth. Also from Delta. Three years ago in August.
1: Yeah, this was all very close together. (laughs) Yeah,
2: if you remember that one, that one was from our mini series on microbursts, right? Correct.
0: There were no problems with weather. It was a clear and sunny day. Specifically, since it had affected Delta Flight 191 at the same airport not that long ago, investigators specifically ruled out low-level wind shear for two reasons. One, the weather that day was not conducive to convective activity, and also that would have been seen on the flight data recorder as a measured decrease in indicated airspeed, which did not happen.
2: And the final one, which I just want to speak on this real quick because I realize why this isn't a problem. The thrust reversers. Since they were taking off, why would the thrust reversers even
1: be out? But this actually came up in question.
0: Upon interviewing the captain, investigators discovered that when the nose gear was raised, the flight crew heard some weird explosions, and the captain said it felt like the thrust reversers activated.
1: But wouldn't he know in theory but we have talked about in the past how a thrust reverser especially these kinds which were bucket oh I could in that. theory accidentally pop open
0: oh yeah i forgot about that
1: and this one they found
0: the investigators went to the warehouse where the wreckage was stored and found the engines with stowed thrust reversers okay
1: and they were locked in places they were supposed to be
0: after running some tests just to be sure they determined that the thrust reversers were stowed through the accident sequence and couldn't have restowed themselves during impact so yeah, what that does, wouldn't make sense. No. So what does that leave us? Investigators reviewed some initial photos of the wreckage and realized that the flaps looked retracted, which no, t- <laughs> no, which to some extent oh. can happen on impact. They could have retracted on impact. So hush. We'll finish first. So why why would this matter? We During, talked about it before. Yes. But I'm going to reiterate it for anyone who's new here. I know we got yes. a bunch of new listeners after the Kobe crash. So, During takeoff and landing, you're flying at pretty low speeds compared to cruise flight, and it's not enough speed to keep lift. Lift is created by air going over and under the unique shape of the wing and creating an upward force. But if there's not enough wind, there's not enough lift. To help with that, flaps and slats are extended from the front or leading edge of the wing and the rear or the trailing edge of the wing. Doing so increases the surface area of the wing, and therefore the lift generated from airflow. It's fairly easy to prove if the flaps were extended or not. Let's take a look at the flight data recorder. Oh, yeah, because they have that. They have that, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, funny story about that. Yeah. No. This was an older flight data recorder. Than investigators were used to looking at, and they found that the parameters recorded were very limited. No.
1: We're I can't t- believe in 1988 on a 727 that this was even allowed. In my mind, it's just mind-boggling. I don't
0: we're know. talking the basics of the basics. Altitude, heading, airspeed, and basic engine functions. No. It did not record.
2: If the flaps and slats
0: were retracted or not. You are right. No. Okay, so let's ask the crew. We have them, too.
1: They were alive.
0: When interviewed and asked if they extended the flaps, the crew said, of course we did. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what the investigators.
1: They were like, "Well, then, why would this happen?"
0: So investigators tried finding another way to verify this. In listening to the CVR, they listened as the flight engineer ran through the takeoff briefing checklist, in which the crew hit all the steps, including when the checklist challenge was flaps, and the first officer responded, 15 fifteen, green light." But that's still not physical evidence. No, it's not. So investigators Do they have
2: the levers from the accident.
0: Yes. And those showed retracted. But. But. Let's not throw me so far (laughs) off. Sorry. I forgot to write that in my notes, so that's definitely my bad. The flap lever was at zero degrees. Okay. There was talk about whether or not that got changed between impact and looking at it when you're recovering wreckage. Crap happens. Yeah. So, investigators went looking for the flap-actuating mechanisms. Now, in most planes today, flaps are driven hydraulically, which makes it kind of hard to determine flap settings at impact, but this particular plane was driven by jack screws, which rarely move during impact. The position of the nut along the long jack screw will indicate whether or not the flaps were extended. The further down the jack screw, the further out the flaps were extended. So, where were the nuts? At the beginning of the jack screw... Indicating a flaps retracted setting. So
2: they didn't retract. They, they didn't. The, the flaps weren't. Re-
0: they uh, they uh-huh. were, were retracted. Uh-huh. They weren't out. Uh-huh. So they no wonder it. they had a problem. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. To begin with.
0: So how could this possibly happen? The crew had so much time to prepare for takeoff during their long taxi. What were they doing during that long taxi? Probably talking about stuff they were not supposed to, right? So I'm going to note here that here comes the Miranda rage warning. <laughs> Still cockpit? <laughs> Wasn't a thing, was it?
1: <laughs> hey, if you were mad before.
0: You're getting way too good at this. (laughs) Investigators went back to the CVR and listened to it for more than just the conversation about the flaps. They started at the beginning. After pushing back, the crew began discussing their paychecks and whether or not they received them. You decide now is a good time Uh to do that? uh Yes,
1: that's what they decided.
0: They then receive engine start clearance, which the flight engineer facilitates, as is his job. But the first officer then reverts to conversation back to non-pertinent stuff about someone buying a home using all their life savings to do so. They received taxi clearance and began to do so in line with all the other planes and began joking about how long it would take to get going because of how many planes there were. How about looking down here at deltas now and then? While we're still young? How about looking down here while we still have teeth in our mouths? Growing gray at the south ramp is delta. That's what they said. Mm -hmm. They then shot off the number three engine to save fuel. They also go through some other flight prep stuff. And then the senior flight or er, flight attendant comes in, just walks into the cockpit, and they have 7 minutes and 42 seconds of non-pertinent conversation before the captain says they have to switch to ground, and the first officer says, Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm just sitting here talking to the flight attendant. Was the... I don't... Uh, why?
2: Right. I don't... Here's my big problem with this, is when you have a really long period of time... I kind of understand the chit chat, right? It's supposed to be sterile cockpit, right? Which we'll period? Th- I'm not yes. done. I know. I'm just. I'm. This is the thoughts in yes. my head, right? And then it's even worse when you have a flight attendant who's also supposed to be doing their job coming in and randomly chatting with with the first. Like I'm like. Mm -hmm. You also have a job to do because you're the lead flight attendant and you're supposed to be prepping
0: your crew for takeoff? She didn't survive,
1: by the way. She was one of the two that did not survive.
0: They receive more taxi instructions from ground and then continue conversing with the flight attendant. She says, are we going to take off or are we just going to roll around the airport? The first officer says, well, we thought we were going to have to retire sitting here waiting for taxi clearance. My gosh, we've got a long taxi to do. Yeah, we're getting down here where we let all the Americans get off first. Once they're all gone, we can go. They meaning
1: American Airlines. American,
0: they're not being racist.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're meaning American Airlines. This is their home, Dallas-Fort Worth.
0: They then have another minute and 22 seconds of non-pertinent conversation. At some point, according to air disasters, someone says something about the fact that they're leaving all this conversation on the CVR and the captain says something along the lines of, Yeah, I gotta leave something for our wife and kids to listen to if we crash foreshadowing also that's horrible Uh i cannot
1: confirm if this is actually like on the cvr because that
0: so there's quite a few sections of the cvr where they just say like this much time of non-pertinent conversation but i mean it's the smithsonian they get some stuff wrong but i feel like they wouldn't have made that up no it was mm. then they start talking about the birds to which the captain says egrets or whatever they call them are they i think so Are they a cousin to the ones by the sea? I don't know. They, whenever I mow grass out in my pasture, they come in and it stirs up the grasshoppers and everything. Boy, they just flock here. I've seen them all over the place out around here. In fact, they sit on the back of our horse now, and then you see one out there just sitting on the back of the horse. Is that right? I've seen them sitting on the back of a lot of cows. Are they the ones that pick the bugs off of them and stuff? I guess. And they hang around them because while they're grazing, you know, they stir up the insects and they can get them easier. Uh Uh-huh. They're pretty birds. It's interesting how they sit around the airport like this without being afraid. I'm surprised they're not complaining about the noise. A few minutes later, they talk about more birds. Did you see that bird? He got the jet blast. Yeah, he did. He got it. Ah, what a crash. He said, what in the world was that? Ever go out to Midway and see the goonie birds? They're something to watch. They crash and look around to see if anyone saw them, you know? They would. They, you know, if you do a run-up the flight would come up and do a run-up, and the goonie birds would be back there in the prop wash, just hanging in the air, you know? And then they'd pull, pull the power back, and then they'd just hit the ground, you know? They were hilarious. They'd send a truck out, you'd get ready to take off, they'd send a pickup truck out, and they'd go move the birds off the runway so you could take off. they come back and they nest in exactly the same spot that they were born, on the runway. Hmm. This is their whole conversation. Yeah. Has nothing to
2: nope. do with their flight.
1: No.
0: I think
2: part of this, too, and I'm sure you'll get to this, is they were fourth in line, and then they were automatically pushed in front of everybody. So, let me keep going. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, I'm sure you'll get
0: there, but they, like, weren't prepared, right? Because they thought they had three other planes ahead of them. Now, most of this, 90%, I would garner to say, don't quote me on that, is the first officer and the flight attendant. Right. The captain chips in every now and then. The flight engineer less so. But
2: he should be the person that's like, we're not supposed to be talking like this right now. I
0: will get into that later. He's supposed to be the leader of this cockpit. Yeah, no, we're all just chilling, relaxing in the cockpit. The flight engineer then got on the intercom and told the cabin to prepare for takeoff, which investigators believe was him trying to get the flight attendant out of the cockpit. All he can say is,
2: you need to get out of the cockpit. We're trying to prep for Takeoff.
0: Yeah. So I know this is a little bit later in my notes, and we've mentioned this phrase several times, but let's talk about what exactly sterile cockpit is and why it's important. So, sterile cockpit is where the cockpit is to only contain flight pertinent information and conversation anywhere below 10,000 feet. And yes. it should only contain the flight crew.
1: There are situations where you, you can, can pop in and be attendant. like,
0: hey, we have an emergency. Usually well, these
1: days, they just call over the interphone.
2: Yes, but. That's a little different. Like, there shouldn't be a flight attendant coming in to have a conversation. No. Not unless there is an absolute, like, emergency or you need something from the flight crew that's pertinent to takeoff or landing because it happens on landing, too. You really shouldn't be going and having a conversation with them because they're trying to focus on getting the plane ready for takeoff and or landing. Correct.
0: Statistically speaking, most crashes happen during...
2: takeoff or landing.
0: And as such, you keep the conversation relevant... Because this is when you were trying to focus and not crash. Correct. On that note. So they spent all this time without doing anything pertinent to the flight, and then they got cleared to go up to the first position. Yeah. So now they're rushing through checklists. Right. Nick and I are going to read a little through it. Me as the flight engineer and Nick as the first officer. We are going to time it about the same timing and cadence as the crew did and take special note of that. Shoulder harness. They're on. Flaps.
1: Fifteen, fifteen. green light flight controls. Tops and bottoms are checked.
0: Nav instruments, they're set. Takeoff briefing
1: is complete.
0: Flight attendants have been notified and acknowledged. Anti-skid on. Continuous ignition on. Nav lights on. Transponder on. Before takeoff checklist complete. Thank you. There's no time to look. Uh-huh.
1: You are right.
2: There is no time between like saying all that. They just went through the motions basically. To say that they got the checklist done and they didn't check anything. You are correct. No wonder that the the flaps were retracted. They didn't look at the d- lever.
0: Yeah. You're correct. Good job. I'm proud of you. In fact, investigators actually also didn't hear the sound of the flap handle moving or them actuating. In fact, there were no noises indicating changes to settings of any of the challenges from the checklist. Quote, Because of the repetitive nature of checklist's accomplishments, it is not uncommon for crew members to fall into a habit of answering to challenges by rote with the normal response without actually observing the appropriate indicator light or switch. During the public hearing, the second officer mentioned an incident where a first officer provided the correct response of flaps 25 when in fact the flaps were set at 15. This can be particularly true if the respondent has a mindset that the action necessary to satisfy the indicator checklist has been completed, end quote. Thus, even though he said it on the recording, the first officer's proper response doesn't actually mean he set the flaps properly, and the speed of his response indicates he didn't actually look, and the sound of the flap lever is never heard confirming what the jack screws already proved. Now for some quotes from the report that will make Miranda upset. Quote, The investigation revealed that Delta did not insist on a standardized approach towards cockpit management. What? Correct. This is 1988. You're right. What? Testimony from management and training personnel indicates that captains were allowed wide latitude in their conduct of cockpit operations. The CVR indicated that the captain's approach toward cockpit management was passive and that he allowed events to materialize rather than firmly control the sequence of events, end quote. If you're know. going... Okay, I'm sorry.
2: Let me, let me just get this out If you're <laughs> going to do this BS, right, which, by the way, doesn't work, it's never worked, it's why they changed it, period, if you're going to say that the captain's in charge of that cockpit then you got to make sure that he is never passive. Correct. If that is how you're going to run the cockpit, if that's how you're going to train your crews to be in a cockpit, he cannot be passive.
0: Investigators specifically say that there was obvious poor CRM on the part of the first officer, but the passive nature of the captain as in not interrupting the very not pertinent conversation and occasionally engaging in it contributed to the whole ordeal. Conversely, the flight engineer was the most professional of the bunch, multiple times trying to terminate the conversation in a polite but succinct manner, ultimately successfully doing so. But that's not his job. No. No. But he, it's, that
2: is good CRM, though. Like, it's good, it's good on him to try to get them to stop and then continue with what they're supposed to be doing, which... It's everyone's job in the cockpit, I feel like. However,
0: it is ultimately the captain's responsibility for the logical and timely completion of all cockpit duties by all flight crew members and to maintain discipline, setting the tone and working atmosphere so as to promote crew resource management, even if that's not exactly what his company promoted.
1: Right. In Delta, it was still a captain heavy.
0: In the analysis, the investigator specifically called out how similar this event was to Northwest Flight 255 in almost exactly a year prior to this, which we covered in episode 59, and reiterated two of their recommendations from that crash regarding the need for the FAA to require its operation inspectors and check airmen to emphasize the importance of CRM, as well as FAA surveillance of training programs with regards to CRM.
2: You know what's surprising to me is I realize that the captain's flying in this case, I'm assuming. Yes. And first officer and the flight engineer are doing checklists, right? But... Did it not bother the captain that when they were getting ready... That the flaps were retracted? The flaps were retracted. I feel like even though you're the pilot flying and you're not doing checklist duties, you should also be like, uh-huh. wait a minute.
1: Allow me to tell you what he was doing at the time. Operating the aircraft. He was moving it onto the runway. So he wasn't paying attention to what they were doing.
0: Which is still not an excuse. No, No. it's
1: not an excuse. Well, they should have
2: had it done before they were even on the Uh runway. Correct. The problem is, is because they jumped those three aircraft in line, no one was paying attention to checklists. And they rushed. And they rushed. So instead of having it done before they got on the runway, Mm -hmm. they were doing it while he was trying to move on to the runway. Which means no one was paying attention and everyone was not doing the right thing. Right it's It's like mind boggling me like I understand why it happened like it's the perfect storm of things, right?
0: Oh, we haven't even reached the perfect storm yet, <sighs> I know yeah, I'm there's sure there's more there's two of the thumps
2: that we haven't gone over yet, correct, but my whole point is even if the thumps didn't happen, the plane wouldn't have flown. they would have crashed anyway because the
0: flaps were retracted,
1: sort of yes,
0: I mean it wouldn't it wouldn't have gotten far.
1: There's a couple of things with that. We'll get to that.
0: So now any pilots out there are probably screaming, and I'm actually surprised Miranda didn't pick up on this. What about the takeoff warning system? Oh, I didn't even think about that.
1: It's supposed to tell you when the flaps are retracted. So there's
0: this system. But
2: was it in place in 1988? Yes. Yes. Was it on this plane? Yes. Yes. Okay,
0: then tell me. So there's this system that yells at you if you try to take off with an improper figuration. Like, you know, this. How does it get triggered? When you advance the thrust levers, one contact on the levers meets another contact that closes a circuit and will trigger the alarm if the flaps aren't extended. It's pretty logical. Right. Pretty basic science there. Yes. How could that fail? Investigators took the thrust control panel from the aircraft and set up a circuit where a light bulb would light up if the circuit was completed. You know, how circuits work. Yeah. First two times, the circuit didn't complete. The light didn't turn on. Third time? It turned on. So it was faulty. Uh Uh-huh. It turns out that this system wasn't 100% reliable because it was corroded inside. (laughs) A blue-green oxide, which specifically makes me think it's copper, which Mm -hmm. makes sense, you know, electronics and all that. Yep. And the contacts would slip off each other or otherwise not make contact, even though the thrust levers were advanced. In fact, they seemed bent prior to impact. Why? Boeing said in their service manual to bend the actuator tab to adjust for the correct switch operating point, but doesn't provide any limits on how much to bend it.
1: Just to bend it.
0: The maintenance manual says not to bend it by more than a quarter of a degree and to adjust by moving the switch body in the slotted switch support mount. I don't know what any of this looks like and I didn't really care. But investigators found you could move and adjust it without visually checking that the contacts were actually making contact. Quote, Thus, it is possible for maintenance personnel who were not aware of the limitations stated in the maintenance manual to bend the tab to the point that the button and plunger no longer make firm contact while attempting to adjust the activation of the warning system. This would explain why the tab of the switch from the accident airplane was found bent well past the limits mm-hmm. given in the maintenance manual. End quote. The combination of this failure as well as the poor crew resource management led to this crash. Now, for a little tidbit, that was not covered in the air disasters episode for some reason.
1: They just kind of ignored it.
0: Remember how the captain said he heard two explosions? Yeah, that's what I said. There were two thumps. Yeah. It was determined that the aircraft rotated to at least 10 degrees, which is what would cause the skid stop to hit the runway on the tail.
1: And rapidly.
0: What that also did was compromise airflow to the engines in the tail. When engines don't get enough air whether that be from orientation, lack of airspeed, or water intake, as we commonly have discussed. They get choked, right? And they, they backfire. Basically. And engines will have compressor surges, which sound like, and are, explosions in the engine. Now oh, yep. that makes sense. Despite that not being uh, good, investigators determined that the breakdown in engine performance did not have an effect on the results of the accident. So did it rotate to the
2: right because he went like this on the yoke? Like it's what?
1: because it's at stall. They took off without the flaps. Yeah. And he pulled back very quickly.
2: Uh, so that,
1: that meant that the airplane was then in a very high angle of attack situation. Yeah. And so at that that high angle of attack near stall, the airplane's gonna want to fall to whichever side doesn't have lift.
2: Oh, uh, okay.
1: And at first it was the right side and then it was the left side. So he and was then kind of in this oscillation constant pattern, he, okay. He was kind of in this constant trying to maintain control and it just wasn't there. Okay. One note about that. He could have increased the throttle and wasn't Delta's procedure to do so, but he didn't recognize that he was in a stall, even though there was a stick shaker activated.
2: Would it have done anything, though?
1: Yes. They would... actually could have probably climbed out of their stall.
0: Yeah, but they still... I mean, they would have had to just turn back around and land, because you can't pressurize after a tail strike.
1: Yeah. So...
2: But if the flaps were out, would they be able to even get up and around enough to land again? You know, they
1: didn't run any kind of simulation from what I could find, but... We'll talk about this. It is in the findings that he didn't do the procedure, which is to go full throttle, and usually gets them out of these situations. If they recognize a stall right away, or this misconfiguration, then if they go to full throttle, the airplane can kind of rocket out of that situation.
0: Is that a memory item?
1: I don't know. I don't think so.
0: If it's not a memory item, I mean you're effed.
1: Kind of. It should be. because There's that's no way that you
0: can pull out of that that quickly.
1: That's something you have to be able to do like this. What they said is that if he had gone full throttle and brought the nose down so that it wasn't such a high angle of attack, there was a chance they could have cleared oh, the yeah. ILS antenna.
0: Oh, well. The angle of attack was severe.
1: Yes. That was what really put the airplane in an uncontrollable situation. Well, again, we'll talk about this in a minute because this had consequences.
2: Yeah, because like, uh, even, even with it being in the wrong configuration, mm-hmm. why did it tail strike? Because they thought that they were supposed to be taking off. So they just tilted it back more? Yep. Oh, it's because they didn't have the flaps. It
0: took longer because they didn't have the... Okay. It's only going to make Miranda slightly more mad. Oh, well. Investigators pointed out that Delta had six incidents in the summer of 1987, alone, that were all attributed to pilot operational error. And they decided not to change their CRM procedures? Yes. Most of the following items weren't necessarily causal to the crash, but rather lend an air of unprofessionalism that had been present in Delta Airlines for some time. Obviously. Quote, the CVR transcript indicated that the captain did not initiate even one checklist.
1: This was all done by Ugh. the flight engineer.
0: The second officer called only one checklist complete. Required call-outs were not made by the captain and the second officer during engine start procedure. The captain did not give a takeoff briefing. The first officer did not call out V1. Sterile cockpit policy was violated. Lastly, all three crew members did not notice that the flaps were in the up position prior to takeoff. End quote.
1: CRM was just a whole thing it here. It
0: was bad, and apparently Delta had an issue
2: with this in the past. See, here's my problem with that, right? Is if this was an occasional thing, which by the way, if it's occasional, you should do something about it anyway. But when mm-hmm. you have... What, it was six incidents? Seven incidents? Six incidents in one summer. Okay. Six incidents, one summer, where the entire thing has to do with the fact that crew resource management was a problem and contributed to it? You should revise your crew resource management cockpit everything requirements.
1: Well, guess what happened? Well,
2: I'm sure <laughs> it changed after
0: this! And even if Delta didn't do it... The FAA probably would have said something sh- about it. They
1: should have, and yeah. they didn't. You are right. We'll also talk about that after the break.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices up down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a
1: thing mint mobile unlimited premium wireless i get 30 30 get 30 I bet get 20 20 20 get 20 20 get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so
0: give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch
1: 45
2: up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com
1: okay we're back let's do some findings findings some findings <laughs> I am, of course, skipping some the usuals. I have also been relatively selective on the ones that I want to read, but I'm still reading most of them. The NTSB found that extensive non-duty-related conversations and the lengthy presence of the flight attendant in the cockpit reduced the flight crew's vigilance in ensuring that the aircraft was properly prepared for flight.
2: Yeah, no serum. There was nothing. It's so bad.
1: Yeah, that so was all bad. Just, that was all just bad.
2: Just and then you add a flight attendant to the mix, and it's like, why the f- are you even here? Right. <laughs> Because here's my problem. She also had a job to do. Yes. She also had an entire thing that they do before takeoff Yes. in the cabin.
0: She's just chatting away. At one point, so when the flight engineer called for prepare the cabin for takeoff, she just, like, said, cabin's ready, and then left. It just bothers me, because it's like, you got a job. Do your job. Question for flight crew in general. Cabin crew also? I don't know. Is, is there a customary position for the lead flight attendant to sit in? Because I I personally thought it was at the front of the plane. Mm-hmm. But we know she was sitting in the back because the two flight attendants who died were in the back.
1: She may have been at the rear. They did that customarily on, like, those airplanes with stairs at the rear. Because sometimes that was the main entrance and exit. Oh. This airplane had that for one. And also, it actually kind of makes sense when you think about it from an operation perspective. You have the flight crew at the front. Because, well, you have the flight crew at the front, but here's the thing. When they're doing all the demonstration and everything, and you're supervising...
0: Yeah, they're in
2: the back watching everybody.
1: Exactly.
2: Oh. Now,
1: this isn't always the case. Normally, on a lot of airplanes, they are in the front, because they're usually also, like, the first class purser, we would call them. So, they take care of first class well, in a special way. Well, unless you don't way.
2: have first class, and then that's right.
1: a moot point. But. Right. I'm sure this airplane did, but...
0: Can someone tell us? Not the point. So, Someone who knows.
1: You know, it really varies airline to airline, different planes and procedures and such, but...
0: What does your airline do? Like, to whoever... I know you don't probably know.
1: about was at the front.
0: Okay. He does know, apparently. Well, he's supposed to know.
1: They found that there was no pre-impact failure of any engine... The compressor surges encountered after the onset of stick shaker did not substantially reduce the amount of available thrust.
0: See, that's why I'm like, I don't know if advancing the throttle would have really done anything. They were surging.
1: We'll get there. They found that the flight crew did not extend the airplane's flaps or slats for takeoff. Yep. Bruh. Duh. Bruh. Bruh.
0: Bruh. This was literally so close to Northwest Flight 255, and I was like, how long ago did that happen? A
2: year before. A
0: year and two weeks.
2: Is that the one that we covered, that the they also did not do that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. And the
0: four-year-old survived? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. They found that the takeoff warning system had an intermittent failure problem, which was not corrected during the last maintenance activity, and which manifested itself during the takeoff of Flight 1141. They found that failure of the takeoff warning system to activate was most likely due to contamination or misalignment of the takeoff warning system throttle switch.
0: I would say and or.
1: Yes, it could have been either and both. (laughs) They found that failure of the autopack trip light to illuminate as the throttles were advanced should have been reported as a malfunction to the captain by the second officer. This is in the flight engineer station. He has a light that lights up on his panel that tells them they are misconfigured. In his words, he didn't think it was an issue.
0: What? What? Okay. This is where
2: knowing their hours would have been appropriate yes because I agree. if we knew how many hours that flight engineer had we would mm-hmm. know if he had any experience understanding why it was important
1: right the but, light didn't come on but he was like everything seems fine
0: oh my gosh
1: just another breakdown in crm
0: that's not even so much crm that's just basic training
1: anyways they found that the captain's actions of continuing to increase the angle of attack after the onset of the stick shaker and his failure to apply maximum power, in accordance with Delta's procedures, reduced the climb and acceleration performance of the airplane. Yes. They found that Delta Airlines' corporate philosophy of permitting maximum captain discretion contributed to the poor discipline and performance of Flight 1141's flight crew. Is dumb. Again, no CRM. S- super dumb. They found that the FAA was aware of the flight crew performance deficiencies in Delta's operations, as well as irregularities in Delta's training and checking programs. But
0: didn't do anything about it.
1: Correct. They found that neither Delta nor the FAA took sufficient corrective actions to eliminate known flight crew performance deficiencies.
0: Yeah, when you have
2: six incidents that happen in a span of three months... Yes. Excuse me?
1: The number of times that... The NTSB, we've talked about before, where the NTSB blames the FAA. Yeah, the
2: pew, 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 at the FAA. Yeah. It's like, come on. Come on. Yes. You were given,
0: you had the data. You had the resources.
2: If it was a couple incidents, okay. Mm -hmm. Six? We got a problem here. Right. Like, uh, clearly, trending
0: problem. Yes. Man, if that happened today, the second one would have been all over the news. The third one, forget it. Fourth one, everyone's fired yes six yes you wouldn't have an airline
1: anymore (laughs) yeah the whole delta yeah
0: one of the most successful airlines in the united states
1: yes they are they are yeah they're they're a good airline now they were a good airline then just things have changed and they're a lot better now but yeah that's that's a whole thing Checks and balances, right? The government's got checks and balances. The there's, NTSB there's a, is now checking and balancing the FAA all the time. There's a reason
2: we have F- Well, the FAA, that's their job.
1: Yes, and the NTSB's job is to make sure that when they mess up, it gets fixed.
0: It's like one of those <laughs> where it's like, it's your job to fix these problems. Miranda, I don't think you can ever work for the NTSB.
1: Well, we're going to go into some terrible stuff, so I'm going to darken this mood because this gets rough. Stuff we didn't talk about, but this has to do with the evacuation. And why things were bad. They found that the left aft service door could not be opened due to deformation of the door frame, which resulted from the airplane's repeated impacts with the ground.
2: So they couldn't leave from the aft.
1: Right. They found that a flight attendant, while attempting to open the left aft service door, stowed the girt bar on the door, as per Delta's flight attendant training procedures, which address the difficulty in opening a door following a gear-up landing. They found that it would have been unlikely for any one person of average strength to open the left-aft service door under the circumstances existing at the time of the attempted evacuation. Why this is important, by the way, why all of this is important, is because that door was the one door that actually had access at the rear. Like, was could see out at the rear of the airplane. The stairs were on the ground. The other side, it was rolled over to the right. So, they couldn't get out. Plain and simple, the left side was the door that was jammed, and deformed, and it was the only door that they could have tried to escape from. But because everybody at the, the right rear
2: side was against the ground. Yeah, right? well,
1: it wasn't quite against against the ground, I think, but it wasn't accessible. You couldn't basically open it. most it was of probably the... in the flames.
0: Most of the fatalities were in the rear of the plane
1: because that's where the majority of the fire ended up being, and they couldn't get out.
0: Well, that's where the engines are. Yep.
1: Right. So they found that a number of lives were saved by the use of the fire-blocking layer on the passenger seats. I thought I'd bring this one up because this is interesting. Oh,
2: because the whole thing with the toxic... Yes. Yeah, The
0: toxic smoke thing. When did that happen? I don't remember. I I, I
1: never remember. Whenever that happened, it doesn't really matter. The point is these seats... Only three
0: years prior.
1: That is amazing. These seats were made with materials that prevented fire from... As they should. From actually being an issue with those seats.
2: It's like because the SVA well, did their job.
0: More yes. people would have died if they produced toxic fumes. Yes, you know, because with... then you'd
2: inhale, you know, hydrochloric acid, <sighs> just melt your entire. I'd like insides. to not revisit that
0: ever again. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> we'll talk about this one briefly, but then we'll come back to the door thing in a little bit in the the recommendations because it does come up, and I didn't really want to touch on this too much, but it was a thing. They found that the corrective actions taken by the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport Board in response to safety recommendation A, eighty-six, eighty-seven, and 88 following the Delta Flight 191 accident in 1985 greatly improved the communications and coordination of the aircraft rescue and firefighting personnel and medical teams in this accident.
0: Good job. You did things. So
2: people could get there and they could save at least some of the people from, you know, burning to death.
1: Yeah. So they actually did. a Good job. Because or- of that
2: dying of smoke inhalation. I'm pr- they still I'm proud had, of you.
1: They still had recommendations for them.
2: But I'm still proud of you. At so, least yeah. it was better.
1: Okay, that's it for recommendations.
2: Oh, you mean findings?
1: Or findings, sorry.
2: Okay.
0: Probable cause, verbatim. As always, from the report. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident to be one The captain and first officer's inadequate cockpit discipline, which resulted in the flight crew's attempt to take off without the wing flaps and slats properly configured. And two, the failure of the takeoff configuration warning system to alert the crew that the airplane was not properly configured for the takeoff. Contributing to the accident was Delta's slow implementation of necessary modifications to its operating procedures, manuals, checklist training, and crew checking programs that were necessitated by significant changes in the airline following rapid growth and merger. Also contributing to the accident was the lack of sufficiently aggressive action by the FAA to have known deficiencies corrected by Delta and the lack of sufficient accountability within the FAA's air carrier inspection process. Wow, that was a huge pew, pew, pew with the FAA.
1: Well, they hit it, Delta and the FAA.
0: Now listen, not everyone agreed with this probable cause. Did someone defer? Someone dissented. So Jim Burnett was a member of the... NTSB, the board itself, and filed the following concurring dissenting statement. I am going to read some of the beginning and some of the end. I'm not reading the bulk of it. I concur with the facts and findings of this accident report. However, I dissent from the probable cause statement. I believe that the Federal Aviation Administration and Delta Airlines were direct causes of the accident. In summary... I believe that Delta Senior Management and FAA were causal to the accident because they failed to assure that the known series deficiencies in Delta's flight operations and training programs were addressed and corrected in an effective and prompt manner. Both were sufficiently knowledgeable concerning the problems, had the opportunity and responsibility to correct them, but failed to do so. And yet, in hindsight, after the accident occurred, comprehensive changes were made in six months. I believe that had the same level of commitment and change been made after the national inspection of Delta the accident would have been prevented. At the time of announcing its 1987 special emphasis surveillance of Delta, the FAA, in an apparent move to reassure the flying public, promised immediate action to correct any deficiencies uncovered. One year and one accident later is not immediate. The public deserves protection, not mere reassurance. Therefore, I would favor a probable cause statement, which would read as follows. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident to be 1. The captain and first officer's inadequate cockpit discipline, which resulted in a flight crew's attempt to take off without the wing flaps and slats properly configured, and 2. The failure of the takeoff configuration warning system to alert the crew that the airplane was not properly configured for takeoff. Also causal to the accident was the failure of Delta Airlines management to provide leadership and guidance to its flight crews through its training and check airmen programs to promote and foster optimum cockpit management procedures and the failure of the Federal Aviation Administration to correct known deficiencies in the training and check airmen program of Delta Airlines. Jim Burnett, member, September 26, 1989.
1: I kind of agree with him. I kind of do, too. Yes. He gets his moment to shine in the recommendations.
0: So here's... Here's where I kind of draw the line between causal and contributing. Contributing doesn't prevent the accident. It makes it worse. Causal causes the accident. Yes. If the causal hadn't occurred, the accident would not have occurred. Therefore, I, I personally agree with this board member in saying that the failure on the part of Delta and the FAA was causal to this accident.
1: I think that's fair.
0: I I mean, I would agree. I mean, if they didn't have as bad a crew
2: resource management and it would have been fixed, this wouldn't have happened.
1: More important than the crew resource management is how long it took them to get around to doing that, which is where he'll get his moment to shine in these recommendations. We'll get there. It's the third one, by the way. First one. They recommend requiring that principal operations inspectors review the operations manual of their assigned carriers and ensure that the manuals clearly state the roles of each flight crew member in visually confirming the accomplishment of all operating checklist items, especially those checklist items considered, quote, critical, end quote, to flight.
0: Like flaps. Like flaps.
1: So... This is actually a hit at the FAA. It doesn't sound like it, but it is.
2: Well, it's a, the inspe- inspection the inspe- of carriers. So. Well, it
1: is, yeah, the inspectors that are assigned to air carriers. So what this actually is, is, and what how this changed today is most airlines and most operations, the way they're trained to do these things now is as you go through the checklist items, If it's a visual item, like if it's just like an on-screen item, of course you look at it. But if it's a physical item, if it requires flipping a switch, changing a lever, you, instead of just looking or just saying the action that you're supposed to say, you touch. Yeah. You touch and make sure that it's actually the way it's supposed to be. Because
2: if you touch it, most likely you look at
1: it and you will... And it forces your brain to think about where that actually is, is. Where it is. actually set. So this is one of those things that's changed. And one of those things that is checked upon these days. Checked upon. For the checklist. The checklist. The checked upon of the checklist. By the... Checker. Checkers.
0: <laughs> they, they, are the Czech <laughs> they are the check airmen.
1: They are. Anyways. They recommend directing all principal operations inspectors to review the training and operations manuals of their assigned air carriers and ensure that the verification of flap position during stall recognition and recovery procedures is a part of those procedures. So as soon as you notice a stall, put your eyes on the flaps. Yeah. Look at the flaps. Just making that one of the items that's kind of a memory thing, like looking real quick. Okay, his moment to shine. Da-da-da! They recommend requiring 14 CFR Part 121 operators to develop and use cockpit resource management programs in their training methodology by a specific date.
0: Yeah! Put a deadline on it.
1: The FAA never put a deadline on it. Which so int- Delta didn't have to cooperate with this.
2: Yeah. when I I seem to remember that whenever stuff comes out with the FAA, service bulletins or what are ADs?
1: Or worthiness directives. Yeah.
2: They usually need to get done in a certain amount of time. Right.
1: This is, can't be either one of those things. This is more of... This well, would be a CFR. This would be yeah. a, a flight regulation. In this case, the problem is, is okay, they're like, yes... Crew resource management is proving to be invaluable. It has to be a thing. We have to have it. Yes. But they never actually set in stone when all of the air carriers need to have have it. it. Yeah. And that they needed to have it, period. Yeah. So they finally were like, no, this has to be done. Like, a thing. It It has to be a thing. And there has to be a date that the airlines have to have training done.
0: So this kind of ties into, did they have the time to do this? Now, yes, I know that's a really dumb question. But as far as how quickly Delta was growing, I pulled up the history of Delta and their mergers and their purchases and all that fun crap. Mm-hmm. So in 1984, they established Delta Connection.
1: Yes. So their regional
0: true. carrier service, which is huge.
1: Yes, it is.
0: And then in 1987, a year before this accident, they merged with Western Airlines.
1: Ah, yes. Western was pretty big at the time. Big. So that was a big num. Their their bigger noms, of course, came much later. the The biggest one they had was Northwest Airlines. That's what put them
2: or Northwest way Orient
1: way over the. Well, and Northwest Airlines and Northwest Orient were actually two different companies and they operating under the same.
0: Yeah. And they merged in two thousand and ten. So.
1: That made them the biggest airline in the world for a little while before American ate U.S. Well,
2: even uh, here's my here's my issue though. Right, is if you think about it. Even if they merged with another airline, mm-hmm. both airlines should have something in place. Yes. So it shouldn't have been that big of a problem to train cuz you should already have a training in place at both airlines.
1: Yes, but Delta didn't.
2: Right, which is the big problem here, right? They is had like, the money though. Delta didn't. But even so, my point is is that shouldn't be a factor because right. technically both airlines should have had something in place.
1: Yes. Agreed. And it
2: should have been second nature by then. But agreed. You know. agreed. Anyway, I digress. I realize that was not what happened because Delta screwed up. Yes. And the FAA screwed up.
1: Yes. Okay. They recommend performing a directed engineering study of the takeoff warning systems in the Boeing seven twenty seven model airplanes, with special emphasis on the takeoff warning system throttle switch installation. So
2: it doesn't happen?
1: Right. The study should evaluate the reliability, maintainability, and methods to improve the design of the system.
2: Yeah, so that, you know, it works. Right. Properly.
1: Right. They recommend issuing an Airworthiness Directive, or AD, to require modification of the takeoff warning system in the Boeing 727 model airplanes based upon the results of the directed engineering study.
0: Yeah, because it shouldn't fail.
1: Right. So, I kind of like that the NTSB does this. Sometimes they're like, study and figure out a better way to do it. And better yet, once you've done that, make it an AD. Yeah. Force them to fix it so that this doesn't happen again once you have a better solution. They recommend modifying the Boeing 727 checklists to require flight crews to check the operation of the takeoff warning system prior to each flight. These days, this is a pretty simple thing to do. There's actually, on a lot of airplanes, basically a a test function. And it runs the airplane through every single one of its oral and just any kind of, like, test Warning, that it yeah. does, any kind of warnings that it has, and it forces it to do all of these things, make sure that each one of the systems are making a noise and that it's all working. Right.
0: We're apologizing right now. We do realize that there is a lot of static on this recording, and you might also be hearing a couple of pops. Our mixer's going real downhill. It's real, real fast. We got a new
1: one. It's coming in. We got to wait for it to get here. And it's an actual professional one. To be fair, this one that we've been working on for two years has, like, really cheap and old. And it works! It served its but purpose, but it's dead. So yeah, It's going dead, and it's time for it to go dead, just in time for us to get anyone. I, I don't have a whole lot more. We're, we're close. <laughs> okay. They recommend directing principal operations inspectors to inspect their air carriers operating under 14 CFR Part 121 to, or scheduled 135, as to procedures for refueling with an inoperative fuel quantity gauge and require, as necessary that these air carriers modify the refueling procedures to require dip-sticking, drip-sticking, or have other op- appropriate measurements of fuel quantity taken, with consideration given to the level of the airplane. We recommend initiating a joint airline industry force to develop a direct approach to the structure, functions, and responsibilities of airline flight safety programs, with the view toward advisory and regulatory provisions for such programs at all Part 121 airlines. This is just overall, like review and structure of training and responsibilities and everything and making sure that there's kind of like a set in stone role everybody plays in the cockpit in all airlines in the industry
0: crm 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 crm
1: what do you know one of the things they did recommend the only other one that i'm going to mention they recommend this to the national fire protection association this is in regards to the rescue operation They recommend to the Technical Committee on Aircraft Rescue and Firefighting, or ARFF, that the appropriate manual be modified to include bolt cutters as recommended equipment for ARFF vehicles. Why that's important is because there may have been a chance that they could have gotten people out of those doors. Oh, yeah. That door. Which, there's a lot of things that go into those doors these days, and they are designed to be seen from the outside when in an emergency. So it's one of those things where they didn't have the right equipment to get the door open, and... I mean, the fire was raging anyways. It's kind of, it's really unfortunate. They just couldn't save everybody's lives. So there's always a recommendation to be made when it comes to searching, to to fire and rescue and search and rescue and all that. When everybody survived a crash, but something happened afterward that led to their death. Yeah. So I thought that one was still pertinent enough to leave in there, but I did skip over a few others that were... Not as important or pertinent. So, that's it.
2: All right. That was Delta Airlines 1141? Correct. Good job. Hey, I
1: remember it this time.
2: Thanks so much for listening, as always. Thank you so much for your commentary whenever you give us stuff. Feedback, uh, engagement. We love it. We Great. It's amazing. Yes. We hope everybody got their ducks. Please let us know in some way, whether it be... Social media, tagging us, emailing us, messaging it doesn't matter. Whatever. It just is helpful for us to know that you actually got what you needed, or that you wanted that to send to you.
0: And special thanks to those of you who ordered ducks but aren't patrons. Like, we saw yes. names we hadn't seen before, which was really exciting.
1: Yeah. And we appreciate that.
2: Very much. Thank you for engaging. Thank you for listening. As always, thanks to our patrons. You guys are amazing. You're the reason that we can, you know, continue to do this, because... As we've said before, the podcast pays for itself now, so it doesn't come out of our
1: pocket. And it's new equipment, hopefully.
0: (laughs) We'll tell that story on the post-episode, assuming we still have one of those, given our current technical difficulties. Alright, thank you so much for
2: listening. Have a great and healthy week, and we will catch you all next week. Keep Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast,
0: and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen.
1: If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at heartlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was
0: researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo.
1: And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman.
2: Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.